that's kind of the beauty of sales is you can ask 10 people the same question. You'll get 10 different answers, but none of them will necessarily be wrong. Everyone has their own way of doing things. You just have to take bits and pieces and figure out with your personality, the way you like to work, the way you like to manage your business, what is going to work best for you. Aaron Anderson, account executive at Salesforce, was a D1 athlete and shares how that has helped her in sales, why it's okay not to know everything, and she breaks down the transition from being the second employee at a tiny startup to joining a Fortune 500 company. Hi, I'm Mark Gagne. And I'm Chris Corcoran, and you're listening to Tech Sales is for Hustlers. Tech Sales for Hustlers is a podcast where we catch up with Memory Blue alums and reminisce about their start in high-tech sales with us. Let's go get some, Corcoran. Gagne, you know I'm ready. Welcome, Aaron Anderson. How are you today? This fine day. I am doing fantastic. Thank you both for for having me. I'm excited for this. (laughs) Great seeing you, Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us on vacation. Yes, absolutely. Hustlers never sleep, right? <laughs> That's right. Live and direct from Outer Banks. Yeah. Sunny. It's actually finally sunny today. There's been 30 mile an hour winds the last three days. So we'll do this podcast and then it's time to hit the beach. <laughs> there you go. Well, thanks for making time for us. Absolutely. Always. Aaron, is uh, just you joining us today? Is your, is your puppy joining us as well? Uh, no, unfortunately, it's just me. He uh, jumped out when I ran to get my computer charger. So. Just okay. me, if there is scratching at the door, I'll try to let him in at the end. But um, I think he's hiding in the basement from the other six dogs in the house. <laughs> it's all pound. Yeah, we're, uh, we're running <laughs> short on ratio of dogs to people at this point. So <laughs> Six dogs. Well, podcasting at a time of COVID and on vacation. So, all right. Exactly. 2020 well, at its finest. <laughs> 2020. Aaron, it's been four years in December since your departure from the company. That's wild. <laughs> it, it is great. Almost half a decade. I don't like to think about that. That makes me feel old. <laughs> not old. You're not old at all. So what we're going to do, though, we're going to talk a little bit about before Memory Blue, during and after, but just to kind of give the folks um, some perspective on things. So you, you bounced four years ago, but but let's go back a little bit in time and just tell us quickly kind of about yourself and, and you know where you grew up, that sort of thing, just, just br- briefly. Sure. Um, so I grew up in Westchester, Pennsylvania. It's about 45 minutes outside of Philly. So everyone that knows me knows I always say I'm from Philly because it's easier. Um, I'm a massive, massive Philadelphia sports fan. Love the Eagles, love the Flyers. Sixers have a small place in my heart right now for them giving up against the, the Celtics this year. Um, <laughs> but I grew up playing sports all my life, always played lacrosse and field hockey. Uh, my mom, sort of forced it upon us, but we all, my sister and I enjoyed it. I have one older sister. We played lacrosse together in high school. My freshman year of high school was probably my favorite year, um, which many people probably don't say that with a sister. That's a senior. Um, wait, hold on. Wait, wait, wait. So you guys played together? We did. Yeah. My freshman year, we were both on varsity, um, at Henderson and it was probably my dad's favorite year of sports in his entire life because her and I are ruthless. She taught me all of my little dirty tricks and we would just kind of pick on people together. We both played defense. So it was, you know, you don't mess with the Anderson sisters was our team's oh, motto. <laughs> the, Anderson, the Anderson sisters are going to come for you. Exactly. It was her, <laughs> me, and then her best friend, Haley Stefan. We, uh, we were ruthless down there. Probably a little too much sometimes. 
I, uh, you know, we, we give shout outs to alums on the podcast and I always do like a little cat call. I don't know mm-hmm. Haley, but I should, I should go, Haley, Haley, yeah. Golden, Anderson sisters in the D. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, she would love that. They taught me everything I know. <laughs> all right. And, um, but let's slow Jim a little bit on that for a second. So you, you were an athlete obviously, and then yeah. you, you know, you played, athletics in college too. So t- t- tell us a little bit about how that happened and then what you played in, in college and wearing those things. Yeah. So my mom actually played lacrosse and field hockey at Delaware. So I always knew that I wanted to play one of the sports in college. I definitely knew it was not going to be doable to do both. That's just a massive time commitment today. Um, so I fell in love with lacrosse probably by about sixth grade. I just enjoyed it more than field hockey. Um, started playing travel. My mom was my coach. She really helped to refine me. I kind of let um, emotions get in the way a lot and took my anger out on people sometimes. <laughs> so she helped me to rein it in. Um, and we were actually at my, it was my junior fall. We were at the Naval Academy at a tournament and the George Mason coach came to our game looking for the 2011 team because there was another defender that was committed decided that she didn't want to walk all the way across. So stayed for our game, saw me play. And that's how I found George Mason. And I played there for four years. Absolutely loved it. Um, the funniest part about it was no one from Philly knows about George Mason. It's one of the, it's the biggest public school in Virginia, but one state up, two states up, no one knows about it. So I would tell my friends, yeah, I'm committed to play lacrosse at George Mason. They're like, oh, James Madison? Like, oh, George Mason. Like, oh, George Washington. I'm like, no, George Mason. Like, oh, you mean Georgetown? I'm like, oh my God, no, George Mason. It is a school, I promise. Like, oh, are they D3? I'm like, nope, definitely D1. <laughs> so it was, it was fun. It was a blast. Um, had a great four years there. And I mean, it, athletics not only in college but just in general even if you don't play in college it teaches you so much um there's so much that you can pull from it and I think Mark in in my interview at Memory Blue I want to say of the hour and a half I was in there I think I talked about sports for probably an hour so (laughs) it helps when you are it rules your life and you don't have jobs to pull experience from always (laughs) well what does sports what does sports teach you so much. Um, especially as a defender, you have to have a short memory. If a girl runs down the field and just completely schools you and scores a goal or she's on her sixth goal of the game and she was your mark, you have to forget about everything else. You have to live in the moment. You have to always be competing with yourself. I was very hard on myself. So if I messed up once, I would work my butt off to really just try and have that one positive to make up for that negative. Then it was just moving on to the next one, do one more positive thing to impact the game. Um, So having that short memory and getting into sales, it's the same exact thing. Someone tells, you no. someone curses you out. Someone hangs up on you. Someone, I think one of the first calls I ever had at memory blue, it was, you know, this guy telling me that the New York stock exchange wouldn't run on the system I was trying to sell. And that was basically what his company was. And I was like, okay, cool. And I didn't know what to say. And he was really mean to me. And I just had to move on to the next call. So having a short memory, I think, is the most important thing. But also having that competitive aspect. Um, Zach Gray, who started on the same day as me, we were on the same client, sat next to him. Yeah, Zach sat next to him every single day for those six months. And, you know, he would come in. He was a baller. He would come in at seven with me and just start dialing, trying to get C-level people. And he would poke me. One day, I, I will never forget this. He poked me one day at about 7.30 and said, hey, I just got a meeting. When's yours? And I was wow. like, seriously? So we dialed the rest of the day until each of us got, I think we had each had hat tricks that day. Um, and wow. it was for Dara, which was, you know, 
a hard client because you're calling IT people who are constantly running around trying to put out fires. So getting them on the phone was easier said than done sometimes. So um, it was a great day, but just having that competitive aspect definitely got that from sports. I get, I'm a very sore loser. So, you know, hating to lose more than you love to win, I think is a big part of what helped me get through some of those tougher days on the phones. And even in sports, when there's a a rough practice and your coach is just on you, you know, you want to just do that one thing that she's like, great job. That was amazing. It's like, okay, back on her good side. (laughs) There's there's a lot of stuff that sports can teach you. (laughs) Yeah. I think we, uh, we interviewed in the heart of the, uh, there's a blizzard. Yes. It was definitely a blizzard. It's Snowmageddon. It was Snowmageddon. And I was like, and Chris and I, you know, we like people from all sorts of backgrounds, but particularly someone who played athletics at a high level, it takes a lot. It takes a ton of effort, not just talent and discipline and focus and resiliency. And we said, oh, I'm going to go interview this person. And I probably talked about it a lot because I was fascinated with the commitment you have to have because you had to do that in school. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of time management and coming out of high school where you're just sitting in class for eight hours a day and then going to practice for two hours a day, you don't think it's that hard, but then you realize there's no one there really keeping you accountable until you mess up. So it's, you know, my freshman year, I had eight hours of study hall a week. I had, um, I think 16 hours of classes and 20 hours of practice a week. So finding the time to balance all of that, finding time for homework, and then finding time to just unplug and be a normal student, a NARP as we like to call them, a non-athletic regular person. That's um, so funny. <laughs> <laughs> so we, uh, it, it, there's not many times that you're not just constantly running from class to class. I mean, there were times that I was running from practice straight to class and I would come in still in my pinny and my cleats. And I was an event planning major and there were a lot of sorority girls in there and you know they would just stare at me and I I smelled really bad and I don't blame them for not sitting next to me. And one day I remember we had a presentation and practice was done because it was leading into a winter break. And I actually dressed up that day and got marked absent until I got up to present. And my professor was like, Aaron, I I didn't think you were here. I I marked you absent. And I was like, well, I'm not in my practice clothes. So you probably didn't recognize me. She was, are you wearing makeup? And I was like, I am. (laughs) This is incredible. Like half the class didn't recognize when I walked in. So you know, he's made made for fun things, but I made a lot of friends in those classes because they, they understood a lot of them played sports in high school and it's a big time commitment. And if you don't balance your time appropriately, you get behind and get lost very quickly. So, so for the listeners, I think it's important to talk about uh, not only did you play, but you were exceptional and you're, you're, you're in the record book over at George Mason. I think you told us in preparation that you were number six all time in terms of games played games started. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I did. All right. Um, (laughs) I, I looked at it more and it's at what, you got to look at what experience you want. And I was someone that I didn't necessarily need the rings or all the, I've never won a playoff game in my life. I played lacrosse. I played lacrosse for 15 years, never won a playoff game. And whether that was me as the jinx or whatever it might be, it helps me grow as a person, but I wanted to be part of something bigger than just a championship. I wanted to help rebuild a struggling program. And Mason was struggling when I came, we, you know, didn't have winning seasons for probably about four or five years. We, won one conference game out of, I think about 24 in my first two years. Um, And we got a new coaching staff and the whole mentality of the team just shifted. I mean, Jesse Morgan kicked us in the butt my first day. We did 
her favorite exercise is bear crawls and because it hits everything all at once and it just kind of shocks your system a little bit. And we did them forwards, backwards, sideways, diagonal, up a hill, down a hill. And I remember calling my mom that night and saying, mom, I can't walk. My butt is so sore. How am I going to do practice tomorrow? And she's like, well, welcome to D1. And I was like, oh, you're so right. This is so hard. But I mean, it, it was great. And Jesse just pushed me so hard. She knew exactly what everyone needed to hear to get them out of their comfort zone. And she's a fantastic coach in that aspect. And she just pushed me to keep constantly trying to be better and trying to be a leader on the team. And it, it led me to starting and playing in every single game in my four years. So Last I checked, I was six. That was in 2016 when I graduated. So there may have been a couple girls behind me that were also starters their freshman year that potentially may have kicked me out because Mason just gets further in the, in the playoffs every year, which is great to see. <laughs> hey, Aaron. So I, I, I'm very curious to hear about um, the impact of coaching and how it, it because it, this translates to, into the sales world as well. But what yeah. did you notice from the coach that came in and turned around the program? What was she doing that the previous coach didn't do? And, and talked about that. Talk about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, Jesse is a phenomenal player. We, I remember looking up her resume going into my junior year and just being very intimidated. She, I mean, played at McDonough, who is anyone that plays lacrosse knows that they're a top program in the country. Um, for girls lacrosse in high school. She then played at UVA, came off the bench and became a starter her, I think it was her junior year, and then played for the US team. So she just has phenomenal work ethic and she would jump in drills with us. And for me, watching someone excel at the things that they're trying to teach us and have her be, because I'm a very visual learner and everyone learns differently. Some people need everything drawn out. Some people can, you can just hear it and learn it. I need to see someone do it. And watching her do it, it was just so inspiring and being like, okay, my coach can do that. I want to learn how to do that. Um, and for me, I'm also very hard. I get, I, I feel like I do well under pressure and kind of with tough love. I don't need someone to, to coddle me along and say, oh, you're doing so great. It's like, no, just tell me what I'm doing wrong. Like, I know I'm doing great. <laughs> tell me what I can do better. So she would always tell me, I, I mean, I still remember I had one of my best games and was just lighting up the stat board. And afterwards she was like, I need you to do better. I'm like, okay, what can I do better? And I was just like, so engrossed because she played at such a high level, the highest level that she could have when she was playing and just hearing all of her wisdom and hearing everything that she had accomplished. She, I still remember the night before our playoff game, my senior year, she showed us her championship ring from winning NCAAs when she was at UVA. I mean, she was, she was just inspiring and she was so hard on us and she just, created a culture that <laughs> we were more scared to lose than we were to win. So it was almost, you know, <laughs> we had to do everything in our power to win because we knew that next practice was going to be hell if we did it. <laughs> so, I mean, she was so tough on us, but she, she flirted the line perfectly of what is too much. She would, she had this saying, because if girls started to complain or looked like they were about to, you know, pass out or die during a run or were struggling, Shelly said, you're not going to die. Your body will pass out before that happens. Don't worry. And we're like, is that supposed to be motivation for us? And she's like, yeah. And we're like, okay, let's go. 20 more 200s to go. Um, but she was just, she was hard on us. And she, I think it was the culture she created. Honestly, we were just scared to lose <laughs> in the best way. That's great. So when you were at Mason, what, what did you think you were going to do when you were finished? Because yeah, I know that management was a big 
talk about that. Very different. Yes. My dream going into college, it changed so many times. So at first I wanted to be a nurse and then I realized I hate blood. So that wasn't going to work. <laughs> so then I wanted to be a journalist. And then I remember talking to one of my mom's friends and she was telling me that journalism's dying. And I was like, well, you're not wrong. No one really gets newspapers anymore. So then we looked at the majors, landed on event management because I'm a very, anyone who knows me knows that I am incredibly organized, like almost to the point that I have a system and a list. Like I almost have a list for my to-do list. I have lists for everything. And I realized that being an event management major, you just had to be organized. It's just organizing an event. And I did that all the time for my friends. So how hard could it be to do that professionally? Well, fast forward to my senior year, we had to do a practicum where it was a 400 hour internship. So I interned for Celebrate Fairfax, who is a small nonprofit in Fairfax County. They actually work out of the government building in Fairfax County. And they put on the Celebrate Fairfax Festival every summer and fall for Fairfax in the fall. So I helped to plan fall for Fairfax. And I actually did a, a smaller internship a couple of years before um, for the Celebrate Fairfax Festival. And man, those people are some of the hardest workers I've ever met in my life. They, the week of the events, even if it was the smaller fall for Fairfax, you're working 16 hour days for a week. You go home at one and then you're back there at six to set things up and, and get everything together. And I really enjoyed it, but I just realized that this isn't what I want to do for the next 40 years. It's fun to do it on a volunteer basis, but not as my full-time job. Um, so then I remember saying to my mom, you know, I want to stay at school one summer and, you know, just kind of hang out and paying rent in this house. I don't want to just let it sit there for three months. So she was like, that's fine, but you need to get a job. So after realizing I didn't want to do event management full time, I was like, well, what's the closest thing? And the thing I enjoyed the most about event management was calling vendors to get them to purchase sponsorships or purchase a plot or a, a section at the event. And at the end of the day, I realized, I'm like, well, that's sales. It's just talking to people. It's nothing really more than that. It's creating relationships. It's finding some common ground. And at the end of the day, it's helping them with something, whether it's, you know, a pain that they have with their software or with their hiring tactics or really anything. That's all sales is, is finding a pain and saying, I have something that can help you. So I love helping people. I'm a people pleaser. So that kind of led me to finding around campus and I got hired there for an internship going into my senior year. And it was the hardest job to date that I've ever had. <laughs> tell, the I, listeners, tell the listeners about what around campus is. Yeah. So around campus, when I did, they just had the pamphlet and the, the planner. It wasn't the, the full blown app. My summer was actually the first year they were kind of testing selling advertisements on the app. Um, but basically you went around in your college market and sold uh, advertising space in a planner that was going to be distributed to all the students. So it was attacking the local businesses, the offices on campus. Um, and there was a team of four of us at Mason that summer. So we just split the town into quadrants. So I had a specific territory based on a map that I was supposed to basically hit everyone and anyone and explain to them, here's why you need to put a, uh, an ad in this planner. Here's the audience you're going to reach and really figure out what pain they were having in reaching the college market and how we could help to solve it. So I got hired there and it was, I mean, it, it was hard. It was not easy by any means. You were walking through Fairfax in 90 degree weather, walking into these small businesses, interrupting their day, walking, I swear, every time I wore a white dress, it rained. <laughs> so, you know, walking through just 
any weather element, it was, you know, the epitome of outside sales. You're just walking door to door. And I learned a lot of hard lessons that summer. It was the importance of remembering someone's name and what you talked about the first time you were in there um, was the biggest lesson I learned. I walked into this small tea shop right off of campus and I still remember his name. His name's John, the guy that owns it. I walked in the first time and met him. We had a full conversation. He was like, well, hey, I don't have time now to hear your full pitch, but you know, come back next week and I'm, I should have time. So I walk in and he was like, Aaron, it's nice to see you. And I was like, Hey, how are you? He was like, do you remember my name? And I was like, I'm gonna be honest. You're like the 10th person I've talked to today. I don't. And he was like, oh. come back when you remember my name. Wow. Okay. So I grabbed a business card. I, and I mean, back then we didn't have tablets, like mobile apps weren't a thing really then. Like it was 2016 or 2015 rather, but you know, it, we were handwriting all of our notes by the end of the day at five o'clock trying to scribble everything in this notebook I had. I didn't know what half of my notes even said. So I kept a, I took business cards then from every single person I talked to so that I could look in my car really quick in this folder that I had and say, okay, I'm going into this tea shop. Let me find the business card. Okay. His name's John. And then I would go back in my notes and I would even put the date on the business card of when I met him and then go back in my notes, find what we talked about and then walk in and have a much more cohesive and much more planned conversation. So around campus taught me a lot. It was incredibly hard. And that's actually how I found Memory Blue. I remember telling Kristen Wisdorf at our week-long training that I wanted her job. <laughs> and she came and, and helped my team. We had a couple of people quit over the summer and me and one other person were splitting Fairfax City which is huge. And she really just helped us, you know, hone in on here's what we should focus on here. What are you struggling with? What objections are you hearing? How are we overcoming them? And she was a huge, huge part of our team's success. We, I don't remember the numbers exactly, but I think we doubled the income in sales that year from the summer before with just two of us. And they had four wow. people the prior year. Wow. Yeah. So Wizzy was a huge help. <laughs> And then how did you, how did Memory Blue pop? So that was the summer before your senior year, right? So you had one more year of lacrosse in school. Exactly. And I started the job search really early, which actually eliminated a lot of people that I was talking to because they didn't want to talk to me until March. But I said, I, I can't do it in spring semester because I have lacrosse. It's my senior year. I will have more time because I loaded my schedule up. I was only taking three classes that semester, but I was solely focused on this is going to be my best season. I'm putting all of my time and energy into lacrosse this semester, and I don't have time to be jumping around to job interviews. And some of them said, talk to me after you graduate. And I said, I can't do that. I live in Pennsylvania. I need to have a job <laughs> before I graduate. Um, so Memory Blue is a, a partner of Around Campus. And when the summer ended, Around Campus was great. They did all the work for us. They sent out our resume that we actually applied with, and I, they helped us to update it with our numbers from the summer sent it to all of their partners and the partners reached out to us for interviews. Um, so Tiana Bell actually called me Tiana. probably, a, yeah, probably a couple weeks after our summer ended and, you know, asked if I would be interested in coming in for an interview and the rest is pretty much history. <laughs> okay. There you go. All right. So what, what type of parallels did you see? Or do you see like being an athlete and yeah. getting into sales as your first, you know, professional gig and you're in sales yeah. now. So, you know, you've been in sales the I whole am. time. Yeah. It, there's a lot. Um, especially at memory blue coming out of college, having a team around you to help you through, cause sales is an emotional roller coaster. There's really high highs. There's really low lows. There's few people that I know that can say 
even keeled through the entire thing and not get too hung up in both of them, I am for sure not that person. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it was really helpful on, you know, a day where I was having just hang up after hang up. I had people next to me that were, you know, quote unquote in the trenches with me that were doing the exact same thing, knew what I was going through. And it's the same thing in lacrosse when I was having a hard day of practice, when the coaches were getting on me in the car ride back from the field to the field house we would just have a, a massive event session about, you know, how frustrated we were and get it all out so that we could come back the next day and be ready to go, or even just get into the lifting room afterwards and be ready to go. Um, so it helps to have those people around you that understand fully what you're going through and can help you out of those low times. And then when you're in the high times, you know, you need to help those people out of the low times as well. It's a team. You, you can do well on your own in sales, but when you're in one of those development roles where it's a team, you know, you, you want to be able to help those other people learn from maybe what you've seen in the past and sales. It's, there's so many scenarios that can happen, but really at the end of the day, they're, they're pretty much all the same. It's either someone's super interested and wants to talk your ear off. Someone won't give you any information or someone hangs up on you. There's, you know, that's really the spectrum that I always see. So if there's someone that's going to hang up after hang up, you know, helping them through that, if you're having, um, a good run and, Sports really helped me to see how important it is having a team around you and how important it is to, to work together as a team. Um, the other big one I would say is having that leadership mentality. I never went into anything saying, you know, naming myself as, oh, hi, I'm your leader. Like to ask me all your questions. It's just being that person that can be knowledgeable and learn as much as you can first and then help everyone else learn everything you know. And it just helps the team have that person that they feel comfortable going to. And that was me my senior year in, in college. I was a co-captain with this amazing girl, Kelly Beard. She was a fifth year, and I still don't know how she put her body through five years of Division One lacrosse. Um, but her and I were polar opposites. I was very, very intense on the field and kind of got in people's faces. And then she would come in afterwards as, you know, she didn't mean it. It's not personal. She's just, you know we really just got to do this. And she would reiterate exactly what I was saying, but in a much calmer way, because she understood in the heat of the moment, how to help people better than me. So that's the best part about sales. In my opinion, is you have all of these personalities mushed together, going after the same goal, being led by a manager who put you together for some reason, you really just have to figure out what that reason was. And then your team will work together flawlessly. So I think the team aspect of sales and sports and then the leadership aspect are the two biggest parallels that I always see. That's great. Let's transition into memory blue then. So, you know, dig back into the, 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 the archives. Yeah. Talk to, talk to us a little bit about when you got started. What was it like? What do you remember? Yeah. So I still remember my first day. Um, I was living in Fairfax and memory blue was still in Tyson's corner right off of four ninety five. Um, and I remember asking one of my teammates, their parents, my senior year saying, how bad is that drive going to be? And they're like, Oh, 495 is, is not pretty in the morning. Like you're going to need at least an hour to get there, maybe an hour and a half to be safe. And I was like, it's 10 miles from my house. It should not be that big of a deal. Right. And they're like, you don't know Northern Virginia traffic. Like we do, you don't drive during rush or you drive home at 10 o'clock at night to avoid all of it. So I still remember waking up the first day, leaving my house and getting into the parking lot at seven o'clock and it was empty. <laughs> I was the only car there. All of the lights in the building were off. I, it was my first day. So I didn't have the little card to unlock the front door. I didn't have a key to unlock the office. So I just sat there in my car and just looked around waiting for people that I recognized. And I finally saw 
this guy with blonde hair. And I'm like, he looks so familiar. And then I saw his badge and there was a little elephant on it. I was like, oh my God, that's Tommy Gassman. So I like <laughs> run in after him and I'm coming up the elevator with him and he's staring at me and we get, and I like follow him back to the back office. And he's like, do you work here? I was like, yeah, today's my first day. And he was like a little excited. I was like, yeah, you can say that. <laughs> so he gave me, you know, the quick tour of the now, what I thought was big, but now in comparison to your new office, the tiny HQ office that we had, I picked out my desk and I sat there and didn't know what to do because I couldn't sign into my computer. My manager wasn't there yet. He told me to be there before 8.15. And I was like, well, I'm here before 8.15. It's 7.15. So what do I do for an hour? <laughs> and then people started slowly coming in and a couple of people walked around the back where I was sitting and they just kind of stared at me and they're like, say your first day. And I was like, yeah, why? And they go, no one's ever here this early. <laughs> well, yeah, I know that now. Um, but I mean, what, what a wild first Very day. Cool. And then I still remember, I was actually just telling my dad this last night. I still remember I was not used to focusing for that long. Cause in my senior spring, I did lacrosse for probably close to 30 hours a week. And I had three classes and that was it. It was the easiest senior semester you could ever ask for. So going from that to an eight hour day, a job, it, I mean, I came home. I remember I got sent home early because it's your first day. You don't have to stay there until five. And I got home and passed out. I was so tired. I woke up at eight and I was like, I don't even want to go make dinner. I'm exhausted. I had to do this all over again tomorrow. So I just went to bed. And then the next day woke up, got there a little bit later, seven, I think it was seven 30 the second day. And I think it took me until about the second month to figure out, okay, this is when I have to leave my house. And it was a small window. Fairfax is a busy place to get through to get to Tyson. So I had about a five minute window. If I didn't leave by 7.30, I would get there at 8.30. If I left at 7, I would get there at 7.15. So it was finding that balance of of when to leave the house. But man, it was was a day. It was a a great, great starting place. Um, I remember my second day, I met my client, Cause IQ. Um, We had to kind of fake that we didn't know that it was my second day. So you know, the other rep that was with me was answering all the questions for me. And it was only when they hired me out down the road that he asked me, he's like, why won't you answer any of those questions? I was like, oh, that was my second day. I didn't know. Any of <laughs> he was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was great. Um, I still miss the gong. I wish I had a gong to hit when I close the deal. I need to make my own. <laughs> you could get a gong there in Salesforce and put it in the office, part of the culture. They would love that. Our, uh, we actually have a small commercial team that brings a little one. It's about probably like three inches around and it's, you know, the daintiest little gong sound. It's nothing like the <laughs> blue gong. I always hear it. And JV Basinger is actually on that team. And every time I would hear the gong in the office, I would run over and be like, JV, was that you? And he's like, no, not yet. Like he's doing great over there. <laughs> Excellent. So, so, I mean, it's kind of crazy, right? So you think about it, you're transitioning from being a full-time college student to being a job and getting to work is a pain in the butt in a major metro area, but then you got to yes. show up to work and you got to cold call people. So now you were, you were going door to door the summer before. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you were, you were, was it completely new and you had to work the phones for celebrate Fairfax. But right. tell, tell us a little about getting, getting rock, getting started at memory blues to get, getting going. Like you, in terms of getting used to, you know, we hit the phones. So that's what we do here. Cause we believe for people to, to develop as salespeople, you have to talk to people. You can't, talk to people over email. We want you to get into conversations and get good at that part of your craft. Yeah. So since my client called that he was brand new to memory blue, we didn't have a call script together. We didn't have 
the personas. We had just looked at that packet that the clients fill out to get an understanding of who do we need to call? What are we selling? Teach us about your software. So we weren't ready to start calling on them yet. So we actually went through the PPM clients, the, the pay per meeting and Adar, who ended up becoming my full-time client, we just decided, hey, this is a list that we already have put together in the Salesforce CRM that we were using. Just call down these people. Um, someone on my team had them as a client before, so they gave me their call scripts. And I will never forget, someone picked up on my very first call and I like panicked. I was like, hello, this is Aaron with Adar. And they're like, you called me. And I was like, yep, you're right. I did. And my manager was was whispering on the other side, helping to coach me through it. And he was interested in virtual desktops. And I was like, this is great. And I start asking him the couple questions I have on the sheet of paper in front of me. And he starts throwing all of these acronyms at me. And I don't understand a thing that he's saying. And I am like sitting with my head in my hands at my desk in my head saying, how in the world am I going to have this conversation? I have no idea what he's talking about. And all of a sudden I hear this little whisper in my ear saying, I'm not that technical. Can I get you in touch with someone who is? And I asked him that and he was like, yeah, that would be great. I want to learn more. And I was like, okay, what time works best for you? And he gave me one time. I was like, great, thank you. And hung up. And my manager was like, who, uh, what's his title? And I was like, well, this is what it says in here. He goes, did you confirm that? I was like, nope. And he was like, what's his email? I go, this one. He goes, are we sure that's right? I go, we'll find out if the calendar invite bounces. He's like, we, we got to confirm that, but great job. You got your first meeting. And I was like, okay, let's go find out if the client's available. It, the biggest difference and the hardest thing for me to get across switching from going in person door to door to over the phone is people's body language. People give away so much in their face that they don't even recognize they're doing and not being able to see that was a really hard thing for me. I would find myself sitting there as they're speaking and just being like nodding along with them and trying to be like, you have to like actually tell them that you're paying attention. So I started doing, yeah, mm -hmm, yep, got it. And I would still sit there nodding my head. So everyone always knew when I was on, you know, a connect with a, a prospect, a CWP, um, Go. when, Ooh. when my head was like aggressively nodding up and down because like, Oh, Aaron's talking to someone. <laughs> But um, it was it was a whirlwind. I love the fact that you remember CWP. <laughs> You'll never forget CWPs, especially your first one. <laughs> <laughs> you, you won't. You won't. You, you have a good memory. You're like, what you said about Tommy? Pretty excited, huh? That's exactly what Tommy would say. That's probably yeah. exactly yeah. what he said. The amount of times I ran in, like physically ran into Tommy in that office, because I'm sure he still does. He would walk around with his tennis ball on his wireless headset that I thought was so cool. And I was like, how do I get one of those? And they like hit quota twice. And I was like, you got it. <laughs> and the amount of times coming out of the kitchen that he would be walking around that sharp corner from his desk. I, I think I may have ruined like three potential customers for the company because I ran into him in the middle of his pitch. <laughs> and you would just hear him say like, Oh, I'm sorry. I just ran into someone in the office. I'm like, Oh, I really hope you can say that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> No, I don't think you cost us any customers. <laughs> so, Aaron, we'll think, 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 think back to the night before your first day. What, what advice would you give yourself now, having lived through it? Definitely leave later. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Check the, check the traffic before you leave. Um, I remember being really nervous and trying. I actually went back through. So, I remember in my interview, I think it was the second one when you came in to do the mock call and I had a notebook full of notes on who memory blue is, what they do, 
how I'm going to sell this to someone. And I remember reading that over and over again the night before, because I was just, I was nervous, but not like the scared nervous. I was excited because I was like, this is the start of the rest of my life. I finally get to start making money. This is really exciting. And I think going back, I would just kind of take things as they come. And I, I'm someone that likes to be overprepared for everything. So I think just being okay with not knowing things. That was a thing I struggled with a lot is I wanted to know how to do everything as soon as I got there. So I still remember onboarding, like everything was thrown at me in like four hours. And I was like, yep, I got it. I'm going to figure all of this out as I go. I took notes on everything. This is going to be fine. And I didn't ask for help for like my first week. And then finally I was like, okay, someone help me. I don't really think I'm doing any of this right. <laughs> so I would say going into the first day, being okay with not knowing everything is completely fine. Asking for help the first week and not being worried to be that annoying new person that has a million questions. It's expected you're coming into this new place and it's nothing really that you've ever done before. I don't know how people could prepare for, for memory blue. There, there's no way to just sit and do cold calls all day, every day um, when you're in college. So I think just, you know, being that sponge and absorbing everything, but then also having your own opinion and saying, okay, you do it this way. Why can't I do it this way? And that's kind of the beauty of sales is you can ask 10 people the same question. You'll get 10 different answers, but none of them will necessarily be wrong. Everyone has their own way of doing things. You just have to take bits and pieces and figure out with your personality, the way you like to work, the way you like to manage your business, what is going to work best for you. And you need to make it efficient. And going into the first day, you don't have to have all of those answers. And I think that's what scared me the most is it was something I'd never done before. I wanted to try to figure it out on the first day. And that is not something that is going to happen. You just, as my manager at Salesforce, Chris Moffitt says, just one good day at a time. And if you string together a week of good days, you'll be surprised with how much you know. And then when you string together a month of good days, it's incredible how much you can learn in a short amount of time. And a good day doesn't have to be, I scheduled four meetings. It can be, I finally figured out how to create this report. I finally figured out how to talk about this one use case. Um, so you have to define really what a good day is for you. And, and for some people, it is setting a meeting. If you want to set a meeting every day, that's a great goal to have. And that really should, once you get there, be everyone's goal. But you know, I think just coming up with the mindset, just make it a good day and figure out what a good day is for you in the beginning and setting those expectations and going in, asking the questions, being a sponge and being okay with not knowing everything. The pain of finding and hiring strong sales professionals is a critical challenge that is widespread and getting worse. The Memory Blue Direct Hire Service specializes in filling sales development roles within the high-tech space. And with a one-year performance guarantee and 0% interest financing, you can feel secure in your selection process when you use Memory Blue Direct Hire. As a company, we hire close to 300 SDRs annually across our five office locations. That's nearly an SDR per day all year long. Finding, hiring, and developing sales talent is the core strength of our business. Now we're letting the public tap into the resources of our world-class talent team, specifically trained to find high potential SDRs in order to close this gap. For more information on this service, check out memoryblue.com slash direct. Talk to us a little bit about kind of your run at Memory Blue was not all that long, but I'm, I'm extremely interested in talking about uh, your post-Memory Blue time because you've had 
two experiences that are extremely different that, that I think we want to dig into and share with the listeners because a lot of the listeners are going to be thinking about, hey, what do I want to do after being an SDR or, or what, uh, looking at other opportunities for what's next? And you've got such wisdom to share. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, your, your, your kind of final moments at Memory Blue and kind of what you did afterwards. Yeah. So final moments, Memory Blue, I was working out of Boone. Um, the boondocks, as we like to call it, there was no heating. So I think I was sitting in like full winter gear in the office. Um, and <laughs> we were just, you know, trying to crush the phones as much as possible. I was trying to get paid. Um, so <laughs> that last month, you know, I was like, I'm going to set as many meetings as possible. I was getting hired out by one of my clients, Cause IQ. And I wanted to set myself up for success when I went over there. And I was like, you know, I'm not going to take it easy this month. I still, I'm not taking a vacation. This isn't an internship where it's like, okay, I'm done. I'm going back to school now. You know, I'm trying to continue this. So I really, really focused on my two clients. I said for Cause IQ, I want to set as many meetings as possible for me to have things to do when I get over there. And for Adar, I, I loved working for Pete Langus. And I wanted to set him as many meetings as possible to help Zach Gray, who was on the client with me and say, Hey, I just set these follow up on them if they don't happen. <laughs> I, I, I like, I like to say that you went out with an exclamation point. You could say that. Yeah. <laughs> so you got hired by your client cause IQ. What did they do? And they were very small. You went to go work at an incubator. I think you were employee number two. Tell a little yes. bit about the listeners, a little bit about that situation and why you decided to go take your talent to them. Yeah. So cause IQ is a software it's cloud-based. It's on a website. You purchase access through a user license and we had intelligence on nonprofits. So our target market was very small. It was commercial companies. We started to dabble a little into government as I was leaving, but it was really um, selling intelligence on nonprofits. And the way that we did that is my, the CEO of that company, he, Josh, he is incredible with, he's a self-taught coder he scrubs all of this information together through some code that he's written and it's all publicly available information through their tax IDs and some stuff that we get through third party data, but he just put it all together in a website that makes it searchable, makes it um, exportable. You can export it directly into your CRM if it's Salesforce um, and you can actually analyze the data, which was really helpful for our accounting clients. You could do benchmark information on their financials, on their payroll, on really anything that we had that was publicly available. Um, so yes, I was employee number two. Um, never thought when we heard that Josh was the only employee that I ever had a shot of being hired out by them. Um, so when he offered it to me, I actually found out in September of 2016 because he asked me to come with him to um, Philadelphia to meet with one of his clients in person. It was the biggest customer that we had at that time, BDO. They're uh, an accounting firm just outside the big four. Um, and their main nonprofit group was in Philadelphia. So we're on the train and he's asking me, you know, what do you want to do next? Cause I really want you to come work for me. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> he was like, would you want to come work for me? Could I hire you out? Like, how does that work? I was like, is this an interview? He was like, do I really need to interview? You've been working for me for what, like four months now? And I was like, I mean, I guess not, but like some other clients interview. And he was like, nah, I don't need to do that. Like you're hired if you want it. And I was like, okay, cool. So um, we worked out of 1776, which is this incubator focused on nonprofits and startups. And 
it was two blocks, five blocks about from the White House. So it was in the heart of DC. Um, and being employee number two and not having anything, coming from a, a place of memory blue where you guys have figured out the onboarding to a T, here's the sales gurus, you know, Guru Ganesh, you need to learn this. You need to learn John Costigan. You need to do this. We have all of these scripts created for you. Here's what other clients have done going to a blank slate. At 23, I was like, how in the world am I going to do this? <laughs> so I just, you know, went through the CRM we had, looked at our current customers, and it really just turned into a giant brainstorming project between Josh and I. He sat across the table from me. He would get a call from a customer and say, hey, do you have people that would be potentially interested in this functionality? And I'm like, yeah, that would be cool. Like, I would want to see how it works. And he would make it happen. And it was that easy. Development was you know, I would have an idea saying, Hey, a customer wants this. And he'd be like, okay, cool. Let me see if I can do it. And two weeks later, he'd be like, Hey, I can do it. We'll put it on the roadmap and we'll get it done in like a quarter. Um, but it quickly morphed from, Hey, get me all the meetings you can as a BDR just for this company to, I want you to take over running our demos. And then I want you to take over our marketing. And then I want you to take over business development as a whole. And it morphed very quickly. I wore a lot of hats at a lot of times. And it was, I mean, my job was all encompassing. I was a business development manager by the end, but more or less, I, I just oversaw all sales, marketing, and business development initiatives. So Josh actually ended up moving to Seattle about a year and a half of me being there. And he would come back every six to eight weeks. And it was great because we would just have these massive brainstorming sessions. And it was pretty much like you see in the movies. We were just locked in a, in a conference room for nine hours a day, writing stuff on these massive whiteboards that they had going through. Here's what I want to develop. Here's what we need to do for our customers. Here's our plan for our biggest customers because we had quarterly reviews with all of them to go over their usage, go over you know, what other areas they can be doing, helping them with projects they were using our software for. And then going through, here's how we're going to hit a new target market. Here's how we're going to reach, you know, the smaller startup-y companies just like us. Um, here's how we're going to get into the big four in the accounting world, because that was our biggest target. And how do we leverage our existing customers to help us do that? Do we get customer stories together? Do we do webinars with customers telling us how Cause IQ has changed their world? How do we compare to GuideStar, who is really the only other competitor out there for us? Um, so it was... It morphed very quickly from, hey, you're going to set me meetings, and that was really my only job, to, oh, now you're going to run all of our demos. You're going to keep in touch with our customers, because at this point, we didn't have our third employee, who is our customer success manager. And um, you're going to create marketing white papers based on all of our use cases and our target markets and our competitors. And, oh, you're also going to do LinkedIn posts to keep our customers up to date on what we're doing. And, oh, we also want you to do a newsletter. And it was one thing after another. and it was. It was really helpful, honestly. It, it helped me learn about, do I want to go into marketing? Do I want to be a business development manager where I actually manage people instead of processes? Um, do I like the sales aspect more of it? Do I like closing deals? Um, so it, it was kind of the perfect place to go after Memory Blue because Memory Blue, I always describe to people, it's a sales boot camp. It's a crash course into how do I cold call and how do I get really good at it? And then cause IQ was, okay, can I figure this stuff out on my own? Because there was no one else doing it with me. It was just me. And it was a lot of pressure as a 23 year old to say, if there's no new customers coming in this next quarter, it's all on me. 
I'm the only person calling for this. I am the only person closing deals. My man or my CEO, Josh had relationships where he would pump them all to me. I was responsible for closing them. So it was more pressure and more responsibility than I ever thought I would have in my early twenties. Um, but it, it helped set me up for, for where I am now. And it was so incredibly helpful getting to learn all of that, the behind the scenes and behind the curtain of how a company becomes a company and how they grow at such a young age, because it, it helped me realize, oh, I don't really like doing marketing. I don't really like doing social media posts day in and day out. I don't like managing comment sections because some people, you know, we didn't have many, but if there was a comment, I didn't like managing it. I, I just wanted to talk to people on the phone. If I could find out who it was, I would just call them because it's way easier to get someone's true opinion over the phone versus chatting back and forth with them. Um, so it, it was hugely helpful. And I never, ever, ever thought, you know, in college, I would ever work for a startup. Never thought I would be employee number two out of three at one of the smallest companies, but they're doing great. Um, you know, we helped grow them. I think they had about 40 customers when I joined and we grew to about 75 by the time I left. So wow, some, some pretty big names in there, some big names from the accounting world, from the software world, um, like Blackbot was one of our biggest customers when I was there. I believe they still are. Um, so it was, it was really nice as a, a small company that people didn't know the name of that they knew the people that were using us and could go talk to them saying, Hey, how has this helped you? It's hard for me to imagine an opportunity where you could have learned more. <laughs> yeah. Just, it's, uh, it was crazy, but in a good it, way. Yeah. And so how long were you there? Two years, almost two, exactly. Two years. And what was, what, what was your favorite part of, of working in that environment where it was totally small and you had to do it all? I think it was having the control over everything, um, which sounds weird to say out loud, but I really enjoyed putting my stamp on, this is how sales is going to run for Cause IQ. This is what I learned at my time at Memory Blue. And this is what works for me there. This is what I also want to add to it. You know, we, we added in more email campaigns. We added in social media. Um, we started doing retargeting and SEO ads, which is a whole nother world of trying to learn that information. But I really liked being able, it was almost going back to why I chose Mason for lacrosse. I wanted to be able to put a stamp on building something. I helped to, I was part of the team in 2015 that got Mason back to its first 10 win season in about 10 years. And at Cause IQ, I put my stamp on, this is how we're going to do sales. Here's how I do it. And when I was leaving, I actually wrote down every single process that I manage. So here's how I prospect. Here's how I find people. Here's what I say to them when I'm on the phone. Here's my demo script. Um, and it was really cool being able to say, you know, when you hire someone new to replace me, here's my playbook for them. This is what I've created. Take it or leave it. And I hope it stuck, <laughs> but it was really cool to, to be able to say, you know, I managed all sales and marketing processes for yeah, a small company, but one that was really impactful in helping nonprofits find, be found by the people that can help them, whether it's for their accounting, their fundraising, um, their website design. We had people from pretty much all walks of life almost as our, in our customer base. And it was really cool to say, I helped to grow that. I was a part of that in the early days. Well, I think you're, you're underestimating and understating your impact there because how did, how did the employee number three, how did that 
person joined the company? Yeah, he uh, was a, an intern with me. He was another sales team leader with me at around campus the summer that I did it. He um, was with the William and Mary team. So him and I were really close. He played football at William and Mary. So we had that bond. We were both trying to do our summer packets during the week down in Chapel Hill. So we would work out almost every day together, got really close. And he reached out to me and said, Hey, I'm looking for a new job. Do you know anything? I was like, funny enough, we're not going to post it because no one's going to see it because we're a two person company. We need someone to help us with our customers. He was like, what does that mean? I was like, are you still in DC? And he said, yeah. And I said, come to the office tomorrow. Me and my boss will be here and we want to talk to you. He was like, is this like an interview? And I was like, mm, kind of but like, don't wear a suit. It's a startup. Like people are going to stare at you if you wear a suit. He was like, okay. So he showed up, we explained cause IQ to him through and through. We showed him the website. I took him through a demo that I would give a customer. We showed him our customer base and, and who we had and pretty much asked him if he was interested and, and he took the job. So it was really cool to also say, Hey, I brought you an employee number three and he's still there today and, and crushing it. So, um, shout out to Andrew Jones. <laughs> wow. What an, what an impact that you had on that company. Amazing. Amazing. So talk to the listeners a little bit about you left that small three person company and where you landed. A little bigger. (laughs) (laughs) Slightly bigger. Um, Yeah. I went to from a three person company to about a 50,000 person company. I now worked for Salesforce um, who anyone at memory evolution knows since you guys use that hopefully still is your CRM. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, (laughs) So Um, it was actually, it was a funny story of how they found me. So I got a message from one of the BDR managers over LinkedIn. And he said, you know, we're really impressed with your resume. We, we want to bring you in for, I want to talk to you about possibly interviewing for this job. And I was like, Oh, thanks. But you know, I'm in the middle of so many projects. I'm not ready. And man, did he turn on the sales charm? He was like, Oh, you know, it's just a conversation at the end of the day. If, if it doesn't work out, you know, we'll shake hands and part ways as friends. I'm like, hmm, this guy listened to Guru Ganesh a time or two. And <laughs> I was like, you know what? You're right. At the end of the day, it's a relationship that I probably should have at, you know, who wouldn't want to work for Salesforce? That was my whole mentality of taking the call. And in talking to him, he actually asked me on the interview, on the phone interview, he's like, will it ever be a good time? You work for a three-person company. Are you, are you ever going to have a time where you're not working on 10 projects? And I was like, it's a good point. Um, and so I ended up leaving just because I was ready for something bigger. I was ready for a bigger company, something more established, something that I didn't have to create from the ground up. It was great to do that for two years, but I was ready for something that was where I didn't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, so I went into memory or uh, to Salesforce as a BDR. Um, and it was so different coming from where I came from. Yeah. I mean, they, <laughs> yeah. It, let me ask you a question. So, like, you're a go-getter, obviously, right? <laughs> you're, 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 and you're, and you're, you know, you're taking names and knocking things out. So you decided you were going to make this move, mm-hmm. and but you know, you've got all sorts of experience. A lot of people would have been like, "I'm not going to go into Salesforce as a BDR. I'm, I, I must go into something different." And and even if Salesforce, that's how they do it, they would maybe have ruled out that opportunity just for that simple fact. But you, yeah, you so, talk to us about that. Yeah, so that actually came up in my in-person interview. So um, went through a phone screen, talked to Rob Capicello, who was the hiring manager who reached out to me a couple of times. He prepped me for the interview. And I came in and Chris Estes, one of the, the federal BDR manager at that time, he 
asked me, he was like, you have closing experience. Why not go to our ECS position, which for them is their inside account executive. Um, and in my mind, it was just too much. I had been out of a situation in memory blue where I had a manager constantly perfecting my sales craft. I felt like I had gotten away from what I learned at memory blue. I was heavily reliant on emails. I was just almost doing too much that making calls felt like a burden. It felt like it was the worst part of my day and I needed to get back to just focusing on that. And in my mind, it was so the position was with their public sector unit, which is selling to government. And I had never done that. So the thought of learning how to sell to government, learning how they purchase, learning how to close at Salesforce and learning how to sell a product as complex as Salesforce, it was just too much for me. So I loved the company. I loved the culture. I did probably a week's worth of research before my interview to figure out where did everyone come from that I'm interviewing? What's their story? Um, and I really, I just did my best stalking on LinkedIn that I could of the company and Glassdoor to figure out everything I could. And I just fell in love with the culture. It's super, like our tagline is that it's Nohana, and it, it, which is family in Hawaiian. And it really is a family, even from the outside looking in. And I just wanted to be there. I wanted to drink the Kool-Aid. I wanted to be at Salesforce. I wanted to have that big company on my resume. And if I had to come in as a BDR, I knew I could do it because I already showed that I could do it at Cause IQ and at Memory Blue for two and a half years. So I wasn't worried about learning how to be a BDR. I was more worried about how do I be a BDR at Salesforce. So taking, you know, some may view it as a step back, but it helped to propel me forward to where I am today. If I would have come in at an ECS, I think I would have crashed and burned. It was just too much for me to take on at once. So just focusing back into really, because at the end of the day, JV always said this to us. It was the perfect way to explain the BDR job. There's so many things coming at you, but at the end of the day, your job is to call people, email people, and set qualified meetings. And Every time I got overwhelmed in the role of my field AEs asking me for things, my managers asking me for things, other people on my team asking me for things, people that weren't even on my team asking me for things, I would just take a second, sit at my desk and just kind of zone out into my laptop and say, we're just calling, emailing, and setting meetings. That's all I need to focus <laughs> on today. <laughs> and ECS, it's a lot more. It's closing deals. It's managing procurement cycles. And I just wasn't ready for that. I needed to, to take that step back. And so talk about the biggest difference between working at a, a small three-person company versus a huge household brand that everyone knows. Yeah. Um, so the biggest difference is that you didn't have to create anything on your own. It was, you know, Salesforce has been around as a company for 21 years now. The public sector came in probably about five or six years after the company was formed. So it's been around for a while. Um, they had scripts for every single use case. And they're really the biggest thing I've learned at Salesforce in the two years I've been there is we can pretty much do anything. The answer is, can Salesforce do this? The answer is always yes. So there are huge amounts of use cases to learn. There are tons of customer stories to learn, but it's all there. There's webinars that you can send. There's demos that you can send. There's so many assets that it was almost overwhelming to say, I had none of this at my last job and now I have so much at my fingertips. What do I send? <laughs> Um, but the biggest difference for me too, was just getting back to that team aspect. I, once I was back in it, I realized that's what I was missing. It wasn't 
you know, that it was a three person company. It wasn't that it was, um, you know, that I felt stuck or didn't feel like I could move forward until the company grew. It was, I missed working in a team. I missed being in the trenches with people that were cold calling next to me. And when one of us got hung up on, you would just, you know, hear someone say, God damn it, under their breath. And we're like, oh, we've all been there. You got it. You know, hit the next one. And that was what I missed because we had that at Memory Blue. It was such a great culture that on the days where you had people hanging up on you and, you know, just basically trying to belittle you saying, is this a sales call? It's like, well, I mean, yeah, but can we just talk? And they're like, nope, I don't take sales calls. They hang up on you. Everyone has those days where it seems like everyone's hanging up on you. And having a team around you makes all the difference. I didn't realize how much I was missing that until I got back to it. And having a team of, you know, 30 other BDRs around me, it was everything that I needed to help get me back into what I learned at Memory Blue and really just dial as much as I possibly could to learn as much as I could. Aaron, I, so I, that, that's great uh, wisdom. I, I'm curious to hear about uh, that uh, community, if you will, the, the, of the team. Mm-hmm. Given that we're in COVID and working remote, it, uh, how are you, how, or how is Salesforce able to kind of recreate that team of being on the sales floor together or what have you done personally to do that? Yeah. So, um, it's a little different now that I am in an ECS role because we don't have set blitz days. It's really on your own, but, um, our team is, is small, but mighty. There's six of us, seven of us actually. And we just stay in touch over G chat every day. We ask how each other's doing. We call each other throughout the day just to talk it. You know, someone will call me. I'm like, Hey, do you have a question? They're like, no, I just want to talk and say hi. So we're actually, you know, we're all friends. We're, we're a family. So we check up on each other, make sure we're doing okay. When someone has a big win, we celebrated together over, you know, virtual happy hour sometimes. Um, when someone has a big loss, you know, we're there to pick each other up off the ground. And the only thing that has changed is you can't just turn around and tap someone on the shoulder and say, Hey, I have a question about this quote. It's not working you have to actually just check someone's calendar, make sure you're not calling them in the middle of a demo or a call or something. And even if their calendar is free, who knows if they're actually free. That's been the biggest thing to really manage is how much we helped each other. Because at Salesforce, you stand up, it's open seating. You stand up and say, hey, can someone help me with this? You probably get 10 people to turn around and say, yeah, I can help you. What's up? It's like, I just need one. Just need one. (laughs) And everyone's so helpful that that's been the hardest part is you're back by yourself in your little office or apartment or wherever you're working. And you have to get outside of yourself saying, I'm going to figure this out on my own because my boyfriend in the next room, who's an accountant does not know how to do quotes at Salesforce. He doesn't (laughs) know how to manage a government procurement cycle. He's never been in sales. So it's, it's getting back to preemptively reaching out saying, Hey, I'm working on this later this today. I need to do the swap quote. Can you help me? Have you done this before? So It's changed in the fact that people don't go out of their way to help you, but that's only because everyone's so busy. It's not because they don't care. And you just have to remember to ask for help. That's been the biggest thing that I've learned going through COVID. But I mean, there's virtual happy hours like all the time at at Salesforce nowadays. And I'm actually going to be on one this Friday with my old BDR team to 
impart my wisdom on them as well. So, wow, there you go. <laughs> yeah. talk, talk to the listeners about, so you ended up leaving cause IQ and becoming a BDR and how long were you a BDR and, and how did you get promoted? Cause you were telling us a little bit about that. And uh, I think the listeners would, would appreciate that story. Yeah. So, um, at Salesforce you, to get promoted, you have to be enrolled at least a year, pretty much for any position. So I was a BDR. They want you to be on, on quota for 12 months. So in my 13th month, I was promoted. So I pretty much went into memory blue mode when I first got there because my manager in our first meeting, he said, the thing that kills this job and makes it stressful is if you lose momentum. And I still remember some months of memory blue, it would be the 30th or the last Friday of the month. And I'd be sitting there until six, desperately trying to get someone on the phone ask them if they had time that afternoon and trying to get that last meeting. And I did that a couple of times and then it would be such a relief. And then you come in on Monday and it just, you're back to zero. So, (laughs) So it's constantly keeping that momentum going. So I, from my first day on the phones, they, I mean, they, it was funny. They told me, you know, we move fast. I'm like, I don't know. Memory blue. I was on the phones my second day. And they're like, Oh, well you'll be here like maybe the eighth day. And I was like, Oh, I can handle that. That's nothing. (laughs) So I just, you know, created my own blitz blocks on my calendar and just called as many people as I could to get that momentum. And it helped me because I always came into the next month with at least one meeting set up. So it helped take a little bit of that stress off every month. And then by the end, I mean, you just get so well-versed in who you need to call, when you need to call them, what you need to tell them about to get them to agree to that next meeting that it almost becomes easy you don't like, it's never, you can never predict when everyone's going to pick up or what what they're going to say, but you know how to react a little bit better. And it's just a conversation at that point. You're not going through the check boxes of, did I ask them how many users they need? Did I confirm what the use case is? Did I ask them what they're using today and when the contract is up? Um, You know, it's not the end of the world if you don't get that stuff, but you just know how to get it more conversationally. So um, I did pretty well, hit my number every month for a full year um, and was in accelerators every month as well. So um, I started getting on everyone's radar on about month seven that I was looking to get promoted to an ECS, started learning what can I be doing now? Because the biggest advantage that we have as being a BDR from an outside person that's looking to become an ECS is I know Salesforce. I've been selling it for a year. I know my I know my customers. I know my people that I'm calling. I know the team that I work with and I can get to know the managers before they even need to interview me. And I can figure out what are you looking for? What do I need to learn? And what can I be doing now to shorten that learning curve as much as possible for when I get promoted? Um, So that's what I did. I I started leading my own discovery calls. I started participating in technical discoveries with our solution engineers. I sat on demos. I understood why do you pick a partner to implement the solution? Why didn't you go with this other partner? Why did you pick that specific one? Started learning how to quote and manage a procurement cycle and there was still plenty of things that I didn't know how to do when I got over there, but you just kind of roll with the punches and everyone, your manager is there to help you through it. You know, they're kind of experts in the selling world at that point. So, um, uh, it was actually crazy because, fe- uh, February one is the start of our fiscal year at Salesforce. So January 31st is always a crazy day. Everyone's there until usually about eight or nine o'clock, just trying to get one last deal in and, the the great thing is the whole team stays. There were plenty of people that night that were done weeks before, but we had one person still waiting on a deal. So we were all sitting there waiting for that one deal to still come in. And I remember that afternoon we were sitting in line for our end of the year luncheon. 
And my manager taps me on the shoulder and says, Hey, can you come over here? Jay and Toby want to talk to you. And Jay is the RVP, my now manager. And then it was his boss, Toby. And they pulled me aside and said, Hey, you got the job. And I was like, didn't I already have it? <laughs> they're like, well, yeah, they're like, this is official. Like we can officially shake your hand and say, see you on Monday. And I was like, wow. Okay. What do I do on Monday? And they're like, we'll figure it out. I was like, do I know my territory yet? And like, can we wait until Monday? And I was just so excited to get started. Um, so it was pretty much a year of really hard work, consistently hitting my number and doing things, you know, off the dashboard that didn't exactly fall into the job description of what a BDR does that started getting me to be everyone's number one off of their benches. They all put it, you know, I wanted to be the person they came to saying, Hey, Aaron, I have an opening. I know you've been doing all this work. Do you want to come be on my team? And I had a few options, but I ended up going state and local because I wanted to become an expert um, in that field. And that's what I was in BDR. And it's been great. I've been, gosh, already in the role for seven months, which doesn't seem right, or eight months, actually. Um, I feel like I just started like last month, but time flies when you're having fun in quarantine, I guess. <laughs> wow. That's great. That's great. Aaron, let's talk about something. So you've, thanks for sharing that. You've got to the closing role, doing your thing. You, you mentioned your team earlier, but one of the questions we always get at Memory Blue from current clients and potential clients are um, women, getting more women to, to execute in sales, in the BDR role, in sales in general. And you shared something with us yesterday about your team um, that's very unique. I've never heard of that actually. And I guess Chris and I've been in this for a little while now. So I want to talk about your team and what's going on with you at Salesforce, but also kind of your take on, on, on that question. Yeah. Um, so Salesforce is, I mean, amazing with how they hire. They don't shy away from anyone. We actually, you know, one of our core pillars at our company is equality. Um, we don't look at what you look like, what your orientation is, what you identify as. We hire the person for who they are as a person, which I love. And my team, so I cover four states as an ECS for state and local. I cover Utah, South Dakota, Nebraska, and Kansas. And my South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas team, we're all women, which is really cool to see. It's myself, my BDR, Michaela, uh, my SE, Guythrie, my field rep, Lynn, her SE, um, Christy, and even some of you know the, the Tableau people that are assigned to that territory, the marketing cloud field IE is a woman. We are a female heavy team and it's, it's really cool to see. We actually get compliments from our customers all the time. You know, we'll be on a call and doing a demo and it's six women coming at you. Um, and it's, it's really cool. And a lot of people, you, you don't see that a lot of places. And I don't think it's because of the stigma of women don't get technology or, or any of that, you know, Salesforce, I think, you know, as a whole has a lot of women working for them. And they actually every, it's either every year or every other year, they look at what are we paying our employees and they identify, is there a pay gap among genders? And if there is our CEO, Mark Benioff, he writes it. You know, he is listening to our all hands calls that we've started during quarantine every Wednesday and hearing our executive leadership of the company just talk about what's going on in the world, talk about the gender equality issues, talk about everything that's going on. It's really inspiring. And, you know, we're doing everything that we can to hire as many women, hire as many people of color, not because, you know, we want them at our company because you're a woman or because you're a woman of color, but we, we want you at our company because of who you are as a person. 
So there, there's a lot of incredible women that work for Salesforce. We have a lot of um, equality groups as well. And one of them is a women's network that you know I participate in. I'm actually doing a women's network workout next week um, that one of my friends, Emma, at work is leading. And it's, it's to benefit um, Light the Night. And, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And there's just so many incredible women that we have at Salesforce. I don't even know if I could name them all on one hand. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, you know, Aaron, we're trying to find more of them like you. And for you sure. Know, Thank you. And, and, and like you and, and different to come in because, um, you know, there are a number of memory of little alums who work at Salesforce now in yes. the public sector. And, you know, that's I think that's very fulfilling to see you go and do so well after getting hired by your client and multiple people who've left the company who've gone and done well of all sorts of backgrounds, genders, and, you know, it's critical. So you let us know if you can find another Aaron Anderson Jr. somewhere. And yeah, as soon as a uh, cloning gets, you know, checkmarked that it's safe, I'll let you know. <laughs> Chris and I will take him every day, all, all day. Yeah, Perfect. absolutely. Yeah, I'll let you know. But yeah, all we're right. going to have to start a memory blue chatter group soon at Salesforce. There's a lot of us over there now. <laughs> For sure. Fire it up. Well, Aaron, it's about time for you to maybe get down to the beach. Yes. The sun yeah. is calling me. <laughs> So, Aaron, we appreciate all the wisdom that you shared with the listeners. This was amazing, and it was great catching up with you, and I love watching you kill it over at Salesforce. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's good to take a trip back memory lane. Mark, I'm going to have to read through that goodbye email that you sent to me a little I mean, deeper later I today. Trying to, I was trying to get to this thing earlier. Aaron, it's four pages long. <laughs> and, and, and let me just give a shout-out to these people here who you, who, in case you missed them. You shouted out. Uh, you know, myself and Chris, Tiana, Wizzy, Tommy, Joey C, Marco, Ol' Shiffy, Shifflet, Micah, Pat, Ben, all aboard the Wentz wagon. So I don't know, you guys are 0-2 this season. Uh, yeah, that one didn't age well. We're, yeah. We'll figure it out. You don't yeah. worry. Taylor <laughs> is going to come in and, and shock the world. <laughs> all right, all right. Alan, Joey P, Tafro Enterprises, Zell, Schwinnabart, Schwitty, Brooke, Stephanie, Chris, don't go fall off on your bikes, Chris. Zach Gray, Mario, <laughs> Brady, Wilson. You gave a special shout-out to the Team Crippen team, OG Team Crip. Crippen, Dennis, Nick Bostead, Bobbert. I don't even know who that is. Who's Bobert? Uh, Robbie. <laughs> okay, Robert. Robert. <laughs> we called him Bobbert. I remember that. <laughs> Jerm. This is Jeremy. Uh, Paul, Dan, Another Aaron, and then Swaggy P. So a lot of then, memories, a lot of friends. You crushed it, and then you did, and then you did everyone else. Time for life life lessons. You just drop some more science at the end. Be a sponge. Ask questions to everyone and anyone. Breathe. It's overwhelming now, but you learn skills that will keep you in a league of your own when it comes to sales. Obviously, so you'll be able to sell a popsicle to an Eskimo in no time. That's a wrap, Aaron. That's a hell of a podcast. Thank you. It was great catching up with you guys. And, you know, Mark, when this, uh, when this quarantine is over, we'll have to have a Mason happy hour with me, you and everyone else and Sarah. Chris, you can come if you want. There you go. I'll, I'll, I'll pick up a tab for the Mason Nation. All right. Special it. <laughs> All right. We'll do it. All right, Aaron, thank you very much. Enjoy the beach. Thank you very much. Thank you both. It was great to see yeah. you. Awesome. Right. See you, Aaron. Is your company actively trying to fill open sales roles with high-achieving ballers? 
The Memory Blue Rising Stars program is a unique outplacement service designed to benefit our alumni and our tenured sales development professionals at the same time. Most of the SDRs that work on our client campaigns are under contract for a specific amount of time. Once the SDR's contract expires, he or she may wish to explore various new career opportunities. We call these well-trained hustlers our rising stars, and this is where you come in. Every single member of our alumni network has full access to hire our rising stars into their current company at zero cost. Whenever we have a new rising star available, we'll drop our full alumni group an email letting you know about the opportunity. This benefit gives alumni and their current employers a huge edge in closing the sales development talent gap. It also gives you the inside track on cashing in any referral fees associated with referring new hires. If you're looking for tomorrow's sales stars today, head over to memoryblue.com slash alumni. Thanks for listening to Tech Sales is for Hustlers. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review after the beat. Yeah.